Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Psalm 17, starting to read at the first verse. Hear, O Lord, my righteous plea. Listen to my cry. Give ear to my prayer. It does not rise from deceitful lips. May my vindication come from you. May your eyes see what is right. Though you probe my heart and examine me at night, though you test me, you will find nothing. I have resolved that my mouth will not sin. As for the deeds of men, by the word of your lips I have kept myself from the ways of the violent. My steps have held to your paths, my feet have not slipped. I call on you, O God, for you will answer me. Give ear to me and hear my prayer. Show the wonder of your great love, you who save by your right hand those who take refuge in you from their foes. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who assail me, from my mortal enemies who surround me. They close up their callous hearts and their mouths speak with arrogance. They have tracked me down. They now surround me with eyes alert, throw me to the ground. They are like a lion hungry for prey, like a great lion crouching in cover. Rise up, O Lord, confront them, bring them down. Rescue me from the wicked by your sword. O Lord, by your hand, save me from such men, from men of this world whose reward is in this life. You still the hunger of those you cherish. Their sons have plenty, and they store up wealth for their children. And I... In righteousness I shall see your face. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with seeing your likeness. Thank you, Emma. Please uh, keep that passage open and uh, I'll pray for us as we begin. Almighty God, you command us to ask. Grant that we may receive. You have called us to seek Let us be happy in finding. You have instructed us to knock. We pray be open to us. Graciously direct and govern all our thoughts, feelings and actions this evening so that we may know ourselves to be hidden in Christ and renewed in our commitment to walk in his ways. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who reigns with you, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Well, a man drives a truck into a crowd of people celebrating. Ninety men, women and children are killed and hundreds are wounded. An army rises up to oppose a government and over 200 people are killed and more than 1,000 are wounded. And when the journalists leave and the cameras move on and our attention is captured by another tragedy, you think of all those lives irrevocably changed. Hearts broken. Children orphaned, families devastated, and everything changes forever. There is a haunting line in 
Dostoevsky's brothers Karamazov when Ivan tells Alyosha that the tears of humanity leave the earth soaked from its crust to its centre. A few years ago, Ben Kwashi, the Archbishop of Nigeria, spoke from this pulpit, and I know a number of you will remember that visit, his moving testimony, not just about the general suffering that is common to all people, but the particular suffering that many of God's people in Nigeria face at the hands of those who hate Jesus. In 2010, I was in Jos as bishop. In March, three villages in the outskirts of Jos were attacked. Muslims massacred men, women, and children. And as the church leaders, we were all convinced to beg the villagers who survived and the entire Christian community to do nothing. There could be no retaliation. They cried until their voices were dried up. Tears dried up and there was nothing more to cry. And they just watched. In 2006, over 40 people came to my house to kill me. It turned out I had postponed my return home on an overseas trip and they met my wife. They did unspeakable things to her. Beat her. Left her half dead and totally blind. In the mercy of God, she recovered. Exactly a year later, they came back. They met me at home. Over 30 people came, broke down the back door and came in and took me out to kill me. Miraculously, Ben Kwashi survived, but he could well have prayed with David, verse 11. They have tracked me down. They now surround me with eyes alert to throw me to the ground. They are like a lion hungry for prey, like a great lion crouching in cover. See, I doubt that any of us here have faced the kind of horror that Ben and Gloria Quashi have. To date, the enemies of God's people in the UK are still largely restrained by the fading legacy of a Christian heritage. Although there are, even within the UK, an encroaching attempt to silence people who take Jesus and the Bible seriously, and God alone knows where that will end. Truth is, the Bible speaks of sin and evil and death as the enemies of God's people. And anyone who has felt silenced for their Christian beliefs in their family or in their workplace, anyone who has wondered at the horrific suffering of the persecuted church around the world, anyone who has stood at the graveside of somebody they love will know how terrible and seemingly invincible such enemies are. And in a world of so much suffering and sorrow, the question always for anyone is, could there really be a God who hears and hides his people? 
Is there a God who cares enough to listen? Is he powerful enough to deliver and protect those who put their trust in him? And according to David, the answer, verse 6, is yes. I call on you, O God, for you will answer me. Give ear to me and hear my prayer. Keep me, verse 8, as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. See, David says that in a world of suffering and sorrow, it is possible to be heard by and hidden in the Lord. Now, David, who wrote this psalm, was one of Israel's greatest kings. Uh, He was a king who, above all else, delivered Israel from her enemies. And yet he, he was not a perfect king. If he ascended to military heights, he also crashed to shameful immoral depths. His reign peaked in national glory and it ended in personal ignominy. An honourable soldier and saviour to a dishonourable adulterer and murderer. And so actually the opening of Psalm 17 is somewhat surprising, verse 3. Though you probe my heart and examine me at night, though you test me, you will find nothing. I have resolved that my mouth will not sin. As for the deeds of men, by the word of your lips, I have kept myself from the ways of the violent. My feet have held to your paths. My feet have not slipped. If you know anything of David's life, his prayer here does seem somewhat surprising. And yet I suspect it's only really surprising if you don't appreciate the wonder of God's covenant love. For there is no question that David knew that he was a rebel before God. He was following God's ways one minute and then carelessly disregarding them the next. Now after he slept with Bathsheba and arranged for the murder of her husband Uriah, David could pray, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know My transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. But the wonder of covenant love is that if we confess our sins, as the New Testament puts it, God is faithful and just and he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. There can be a fresh start, a new beginning. And because David understood that the Lord's love was so great and his forgiveness was so complete that he could write as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. So when David wrote this psalm, he knew that he was heard because he was hidden in God's covenant love. And of course, that can be true for you in Jesus. Love that is so great. Forgiveness that is so complete that God can remove your sin as far as the east is from the west and you can start again. As William Langdon put it, all the wickedness in this world that man might work or think 
is no more to the mercy of God than a live coal in the sea. Of course, such covenant love always seems scandalous to to those who think that only merit and not mercy can earn them favor with God. Hear the good news of God's undeserved forgiveness and someone will say, well, shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? Or as Voltaire rather cynically put it, God will forgive. That is his business. But whilst it's true faithfulness doesn't secure forgiveness, it is also true that forgiveness does demand faithfulness. And for all his failings, David understood that. When you know God's forgiveness in Jesus, you want to turn from sin and follow your saviour because the past is dealt with and the future is secure. So you can, as David understood, be heard by Jesus because you are hidden in his love. Verse 6. I call on you, O God, for you will answer me. Keep me, verse 8, as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Sometimes I think we can feel that our failures are so final or so frequent that there cannot be a way back to God. And even if we feel, verse 5, that our steps have held to the Lord's past, that like David, our, our settled desire is to walk in the Lord's ways, even then sin confessed in the past can for many still haunt us in the present. Unless, that is, you do what David did in verse 7. Unless you remember the wonder of the Lord's great love. You see, what, what is it that filled David's mind and calmed his troubled conscience? It is the God of covenant promise, the God who makes promises and keeps them, the God who did what we could never do, the God who delivers us from our enemies through the wonders of his saving acts in history. Now, it may not be immediately obvious in our translation, but verse 7, it's the language of covenant love. It's the language of Exodus deliverance. Because God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast covenant love because he didn't treat Israel or David as their sins deserve. Because he showed covenant love to Israel in her deliverance from Egypt, David can take refuge in him. Verse 7, show the wonder of your great love. You who save by your right hand those who take refuge in you from their foes. And if that was true for David, how much more for those of us this side of Jesus, whose deliverance is not seen in the sands of Egypt, but in the blood of a Roman cross? See, in a world of so much sorrow and suffering, we can be heard and hidden in him, verse 8. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. To be hidden in the shadow of the Lord's wings is actually an image that appears a number of times in the Bible. It's a place of of warmth, of protection, of security. And it's certainly remarkable the way in which birds fiercely protect their young. We have four chickens at home. They are much loved by my wife. Having lived in a house of boys, she needed some female company. And so chickens were granted as a birthday gift 
on the condition that there was an end to the chicken bric-a-brac that was gradually filling our home. Or chick-a-brac, as a friend put it. So now, Barbara, Tilly, Gladys and Judith happily wander our garden and produce a fairly endless supply of eggs. Although when the boys are home, it has to be said that on occasions, demand outstrips supply. And a few months back, the egg rack was empty and the boys were hungry. So one of our sons headed out to the chicken coop for breakfast. There was a problem, however. The girls were still laying. And an attempt by one of the boys to retrieve an egg was met with a look of maternal chicken horror. (laughs) There was a quiet but defiant tucking of eggs under the security of her protective wings. And I have no doubt that were there to be further attempts to steal her precious eggs, it would have been met with a lot of noise and some fairly fierce pecking. Because breakfast or no breakfast, you don't mess with Barbara and her girls. (laughs) To be hidden in the shadow of the Lord's wings. In a world of so much suffering and sorrow, when your business and your home and your family are attacked, can there be anything more precious than to be heard and hidden? To know that if your enemies, verse 10, close up their callous hearts, nevertheless, verse 6, God will answer and give ear to you and hear your prayer. And though your enemies might hunt you down like a lion, verse 12, Nevertheless, there is a place where you can hide, verse 8. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. It's true, there's much joy in this world. Glorious summer Sunday. Friends. The last day of school, six weeks of holiday. It doesn't get much better than that. But you know, this world can be a wicked and discouraging place. You think of Nice, and you think of Turkey, and you think of Nigeria. Certainly was for David. It has been for God's people throughout the past and today throughout the world. Believers suffering like those in Nigeria. And for us? See, in the Lord's mercy, most of us will have been spared the flesh and blood enemies of many Nigerian believers, but none of us will escape what the Bible describes as the last enemy. That is death. I've done several funerals in the past when people have requested that dreadful poem by Henry Scott Holland. It's a poem that begins with that fundamentally dishonest line, Death is nothing at all. Every funeral I have ever taken, every funeral I have ever attended, death always feels the exact opposite of nothing at all. It feels weighty and final and terrible. A great enemy that we long would be conquered Do you not think that the people in Nice and Turkey feel that tonight? I was at my uncle's funeral 
on Friday. 69. Married for 49 years. A lifelong member of Kinder, Kinder Mountain Rescue Team, and he died of a heart attack on Kinder Scout trying to help a walker who had got into distress. When I saw his wife at the front of the church weeping, I thought of those haunting words of C.S. Lewis when he reflected on the death of his wife. I look up at the night sky. Is anything more certain than in all those vast times and spaces, if I were allowed to search them, I should nowhere find her face, her voice, her touch. Which is why facing the enemies of God's people, be they flesh and blood opposition or the last enemy death itself, David prays as he does in verse 13. Rise up, O Lord. Confront them. Bring them down. Rescue me from the wicked by your sword. The truth is there can be no salvation for God's people without the defeat of our enemies. For it is only when our enemies are defeated that we can really be safe and secure. And yet I guess that many of us feel uncomfortable with David's words. If we mistake covenant confidence at the beginning of the psalm for hypocrisy and presumption, we mistake covenant justice at the end of the psalm for violence and retaliation. So we find ourselves asking, is it, is it really appropriate to ask God to rescue us from the wicked by his sword? Is it really possible to think of a final judgment? I suspect, actually, it's a mark of our arrogance that we think that we are more patient and compassionate than the Lord. And I think it's probably a reflection of our relative comfort that we do not think that justice is necessary for our true salvation. See, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, much more so than we are. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished, nor, if we are honest, would we want him to. For if justice without love is cold, love without justice is empty. The Croatian theologian Miroslav Volf contends that the, the practice of non-violence in this life, of non-retaliation, requires a belief in divine vengeance, in final judgment in the life to come. And Volf says that such of you will be, as he puts it, unpopular with many Christians particularly theologians in the West. To the person who is inclined to dismiss it, he says, I suggest imagining that you are delivering a lecture in a war zone, as I have done. Among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit, Soon you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home to think that the idea of human non-violence and retaliation corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, such a view will invariably die. And as one watches it die, one would do well to reflect about many other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. 
But if you see, like David, how terrible the enemies you face really are, then you will pray with him, verse 13. Rise up, O Lord. Confront them. Bring them down. Rescue me from the wicked by your sword. And of course, David's words in this psalm, as with the whole of the Old Testament, is always leaning forwards, pointing forwards, looking for fulfillment in another king of whom the Lord will say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. For although David was a great king, he was far from a perfect king. And although he defeated many of the enemies of God's people, sin and evil and death have remained. And those Christians who have paid the ultimate price for their faith cry out, How long, O Lord? And at the same time, they point us to a greater king than David. To Jesus. You see, if David was a forgiven sinner who tried to walk in God's ways, verses 1 to 6, Jesus was a faithful saviour who always worked in God's ways. If David recalled God's deliverance in the Exodus, verses 7 to 9, Jesus fulfilled his deliverance on the cross. And if David prayed for the defeat of God's enemies in verse 13, Jesus secured it forever. He has, as the New Testament puts it, destroyed all dominion, authority and power, putting all enemies under his feet, even the last enemy to be destroyed, that is, death. Of course, there's a a now and there's a not yet to our salvation, so we can pray now and the Lord hears, verse 6. But this world and our lives remain difficult and painful. But if we pray now and the Lord hears, we will see then and be satisfied, verse 15. For there is a day when the horror and the suffering and the sadness of this tear-soaked world will end. And I, in righteousness, I shall see your face. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with seeing your likeness. Sometimes life can feel like a terrible nightmare that you don't want to wake up from. You think that will certainly be true of many of the grieving families in France and Turkey. The tragedy of those shattered lives. And it's true for all those who have faced what the Bible calls the final enemy. Those who have grieved at the graveside of a loved husband or wife. Father or mother. Daughter or son. But if you are hidden in the Lord, whatever the suffering and sorrow of this world, you pray now and the Lord hears. And on the last day when you awake from death, you will see and be satisfied, for even the greatest of enemies will be defeated, because the greatest of saviors will be seen. I think few people have captured it better than Tolkien in the words of Sam Gamgee. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered, full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad had happened? But in the end, it is only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness 
must pass. Well, let's pray, shall we? I call on you, O God, for you will answer me. Give ear to me and hear my prayer. Show me the wonder of your great love, you who save by your right hand those who take refuge in you from your foes. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Amen.